You are listening to the Mary Jane Society podcast, where you will meet entrepreneurs, cultivators, inventors, creators, and leaders in the cannabis industry. I'm your host, Pam Schmiel, marketer and publicist in the cannabis industry. Sensory science is the next step to elevate product development for cannabis brands. Today we meet Dr. Ed S. He's an expert in sensory science and head of product development at Cambium Analytica, where he partners with cannabis brands to create products based on sensory science. He's also created one of the first cannabis aroma lexicons to help brands develop unique standout products. He tells us that terpenes are just one class of hundreds of aroma active compounds in cannabis. Let's meet Dr. Ed. Welcome to the Mary Jane Society podcast. You're coming, to be here. From, you're coming from Michigan? That's right. Yep. I'm uh, based in Ypsilanti and um, that's where I'm currently at right now recording this. So um, I guess we'll just start with, right, if you can explain to us um, the cannabis aroma lexicon created to ca- ca- categorize cannabis cultivars. It's a really exciting time to be a cannabis brand. There's so much potential. And coming from the food science world, uh, I was really fascinated by cannabis as a consumer product. When I was in grad school, you know, I studied commodities, fruits and vegetables, beans, tomatoes, and lettuce. And and each of these little commodities has their own sort of internal government that, that like the Michigan Bean Commission that was looking at how to improve bean quality and, and appellation and uh, all these different factors that uh, the, the uh, bean industry might be interested in. And when I got to uh, Cambium Analytica, you know, when I was asked to develop the sensory program, I realized that there's really not that sort of industry-wide collective uh, goal of, of developing the, you know, quality metrics for, for the industry. Um, and, you know, when I was working in grad school, they, was, they, they knew their products so intimately. It would, you know, they would know if their tomato that they developed was like perfect size for the industry standard slicing mechanism. And therefore it was like super suitable for fresh salad tomatoes. And, and, and we just are so, you know, in our infancy still, that we don't have a lot of that intuition as an industry. And, and I think we are really interested in contributing to that by developing quality metrics. And, and the best way to do that is with sensory science. Um, and for me, as you know, someone who studied a lot of those vegetables, this is a really unexplored continent of, uh, of sensory science. You know, it's a really diverse plant cannabis and there's so much to begin to understand about it. And there's a little that's been done and it's really exciting to just uh, dig in and, and find all these different factors that might influence liking of cannabis. And um, we started as just a really small team of just me and my co-author, Shelby Suzblinski. Um, and we just started by talking to people about what they liked or didn't like about cannabis. And we would just bring in these small groups of employees and chat with them for an hour or so a week. Uh, looking at different cannabis buds and, and saying, you know, what do you like this? What does it smell like to you? Starting to get a feel for how they're describing it and what they're looking at, what catches their eye and what doesn't. Um, and these panels were like, they were really revealing about how 
both people who had smoked cannabis for a long time and people who really hadn't had any experience with cannabis interact with the product. And I remember one person, our, our lovely HR director, she, uh, she's not a cannabis user. And she, she described one of them as smelling uh, very positively, just like her grandpa's couch. And I always, that really stuck with me because it was like this little vivid memory had been unlocked just by smelling this piece of cannabis. And, and I feel like there's such an opportunity to use that in branding. Um, so we knew we had to start working on a cannabis aroma lexicon at that point. And just to help other people find that experience and, and yeah. uh, have that, have that vivid, you know, uh, experience with cannabis. It's, it's such a great opportunity. And, and people have been trying, you know, I've been reading and hearing, you know, people have been talking about it, especially in, in, you know, the wine country in Northern California, they're talking about, you know, making, I guess that what would you make it into an appellation or is it, cons how, how's that phrased uh, when it's, yeah, an appellation usually is is like uh, you know a designation for like a district where something is grown, and and um, I don't think we're quite there yet because okay. a lot of that comes from understanding the sort of the terroir of the the region, and um, and I think cannabis is uh, we we start to start at step one, which is sort of figure out what we like about cannabis and what uh, we kind of want to think is important and that might distinguish a one growing uh, place from another there's not currently you know you might say okay we grow this at the same cultivar in michigan and california and they're different how like why is that interesting so i think uh, we have to kind of back up looking. and say what what are the things that make cannabis cultivars unique from one another uh and that's such like a it's a long journey to get to get there and like i said with tomatoes they've had you know centuries to to look at this stuff and they've got a really good sense of when they have something that's truly unique um and in cannabis it's a little more haphazard just because it's such a nascent industry yeah um, and even now it, it's interesting you mentioned appellation because um you know one of the things we did with that first kind of you know six months of just chatting with with people about cannabis was we would bring in cultivars of the same name and show them all, you know, we would bring in like a blue dream cannabis cultivar and, and say, you know, what does it smell like to you? Um, without telling them it was blue dream. And it was interesting, we would bring like three different ones in and they would smell and say, this is super garlicky and the next one would be super skunky or then the next one would be, you know, very herbal. And so it was three strains with the same name and they all smelled different. And none of them smelled like what you might expect the strain to smell like based on, um, you know, your own research on Google. So that was like, there's, you know, right now there's just not enough um, control over what, you know, these different the genetics of the plants are um, that we would reliably be able to do any type of appellation. We'll get there, but right now it's, it's sort of the wild west. And um, right, right. That was another reason that's kind of like, we really wanted to develop this lexicon to, to help, you know, those three strains were good. They just weren't being described in a way that resonated with, with the people who are smelling them. So it's just a great opportunity to, uh, you know, you don't have to call it Blue Dream just because genetically it's like that right now. There's no regulation that's stipulating that. So you so can- So why is it called Blue Dream? Why, why are they naming these, these strains, these, these crazy names? 
they're they're basing it off of you know which plants had been hybridized uh over the many years in the black market and um you know a blue dream might it's some genetic line that that at one point maybe had blueberry aroma but has since uh been hybridized and moved around to different terrars and different locations and grown in different ways there's all these other effects that are now now you have you know two that are that came from the same genetic line but they're substantially different in their phenotype so um that's kind of the how we got to that um, and yeah we just have to kind of rein it in and and uh re-identify re yes re-identify yeah and it's a the big effort to yeah. do that but um the only way we could really start to do that is by then doing these formal evaluations of the cannabis plant and saying what what is it presenting and and what do we see consistently in this you know group of genetics that that warrants a categorization if that makes sense well, I guess that kind of leads into the next question is what are the challenges of creating a cannabis lexicon? And that seems like one of the challenges is how are you going to set the standards and the naming and the distinctions? Like what is, or yeah, be the obvious to me, but what do you think? I think that a lot of that's up to the industry. What we're really looking at with the lexicon is providing a means for them to even measure the properties of cannabis at all. Um, which is is difficult and is important eventually to then start to classify cannabis. Um, and one of the probably the biggest challenge we run into is um, how do we balance inclusivity of people's sort of uh, verbal descriptions of these cannabis uh, samples and then the usability of the tool. Uh, so, for example, you might have you know a cannabis plant that smells vaguely fruity. Um, and one person might say it smells like apple. Another person might say it smells like peach. Um, you know, 20 people can smell it and they might all have different specific aromas. And so you get this spread of, of different fruit and it's very hard to pick one and say, okay, this is what we should focus our brand on. So it's, but you also can't say, you know, fruity is not specific enough to develop a brand around either. So trying to find that sweet spot where you know, I think in this example, you could go with something like Orchard, where that will resonate with the person who smelled apple and the person who smelled peach, but mm -hmm. still be unique enough to build a brand around. So it's, it's finding, you know, helping people to come to a common language that describes it. So it resonates with the, the most amount of people. So then when someone goes to the dispensary and says, I'd like something with a bit of an apple, uh, they can be, the, the bud tender could then provide them something that is in that orchard category or some different ones. And then they can have that individual because, you know, you might think an apple smells like a peach and other people might think they're really different. And it's, there's a lot of personal variation between the way we perceive aromas. You know, it's very psychological. and There's a lot of uh, hedonics liking that goes into that, you know. So it's really important to find that sweet spot where you have a branding opportunity, but you aren't going so specific that you're alienating people either. Right, and I guess maybe eventually the idea is to get this cannabis lexicon well-known enough and accepted that people naming these new strains, because these strains are just going to be, you know, different different versions are gonna be coming out, different breeds and, 
you know, hybrid. So it's, go it's going to be an ongoing problem. So I guess your job is to get this really accepted and set up some sort of system that eventually the breeders and the cultivators will will refer to this. I guess that's the idea as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, and the breeders, you know, they'll want to refer to it so they're not growing a bunch of overlapping strains and the and the producers too will they don't want to cannibalize their own sales by selling exclusively fruity options. They want to have different options for different market segments. And you, you can't do that if you don't categorize them in some way. Um, but right now, in the absence of any guidance, I think it's inevitable that a, le a lexicon will have to be adopted eventually. I think there are a lot of sort of, uh, you know, sort of proposed lexicons. And of course, the terpenes is kind of what's filled the vacuum right now. But that's not going to be sustainable. Uh, and we may talk about that yeah. uh, in more detail. But, you know, there's going to need to be a lexicon. As soon as a lexicon that resonates with consumers becomes available, it will be adopted. It, it, it's there's such a need for that in this product that I think it's inevitable. So, so this lexicon is is just for aroma. So, so it's basically a, a lexicon is like a list of all these words that we've determined through our experimentation to be good at describing cannabis. So, uh, they're commonly used to describe cannabis. Um, they are repeatedly measurable in certain instances. And then it comes with each word, each word in that lexicon having its own definition and then some reference that we can say, okay, if you're not sure what a uh, peach smells like, go buy this peach and smell it. And like, that's the, the sort of standard definition. Um, and that's something that we're continuing to build out as our lexicon is not static, right? We want it to be ever evolving. We want people to contribute. And we even find, you know, we publish this this wheel and we're already finding instances where there's stuff we'd like to add, um, stuff we'd like to consolidate or stuff that's being used uh, in different ways by different consumers. So it's really important um, that we continue to grow it basically. And, and other industries like the coffee industry have done this extremely well. You know, they spent a lot of time over many years um, growing this their sort of their their lexicon and and you mentioned you know it being just for aroma I think that's true right now when we're talking about this specific lexicon but the words we use to describe cannabis will grow beyond just aroma even though I think aroma is probably one of the more important uh you know sensory attributes of cannabis uh, texture visuals appearance and even some slight oral Stuff, you know, you squeeze it, you might hear crackling. There, you know, we use all our senses to, to taste food and it's not terribly different for cannabis. So I guess that's the other question is, um, is there a relationship between the physiological and sensory effects of cannabis? So I know there are some strains that say they help make you sleepy and some of the cannabinoids in there you know, the CBN is supposed to be make you sleepy and things like that. CBG relaxing, I guess. Um, so it has to do with the com the compounds in the plant as well. But what about the sensory? Is that affecting the uh, physiological effect? There is a really amazing paper by uh, Jerry Plum and his team called the Nose Nose. And it was, uh, it described how the pleasurability of the experience of consuming cannabis was really de 
dependent on whether they like the aroma. Um, so that, you know, regardless of the potency of the plant. So it suggests that there is, is a relationship between how the experience feels to you and the aroma. Um, I, I think that very little is known about the sort of physiological mechanisms that actually are uh, happening that produce these effects, but they appear to be really uh, interpersonal, very personal, uh, very related to your own your own uh, biology. And um, I think right now what we know is that the whether or not whatever whether or not all these certain botanicals work in a certain way is maybe not as important as the actual uh, whether you like the smell of it. Um, and, and so I think it, it's, it warrants focusing on that um, and less on the sort of the entourage effect that we, we pursue. Um, and even then, it, when you're looking at potency too, it, it appears that potency is not even a good predictor of how much of a uh, high you get, interestingly. You would, of course, expect that, but it, it appears that the aroma actually is uh, contributing to the feeling of highness and in a significant way. Um, so there definitely is a relationship. I think it's, it's just something that we're only just beginning to understand. And um, in the meantime, I think it's, it's something that you just can't discount the, the huge effect that aroma is gonna have on that experience. So, you, so you're basically against, um, like a lot of the CPG brands, you know, came out trying to identify or stand out uh, with their products by claiming that this strain will, yeah, make you sleepy. This will make you energetic. This, you should use this to exercise on this, blah, 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 blah. So you're saying it should not be just, that it shouldn't be described that way, or maybe they're just missing a piece of, what do you think? I think that it's just a bit premature to say that these, that a lot of times they'll present the top three terpenes, right? And say, these are the defining parts of this plan. They, let's just say like a top terpene is pinene and myrcene. Well, how do you reconcile that, you know, pinene is sort of associated with alertness and mercy is associated with sedation um so are you just alert and sleepy like the terpenes and their association oh. with yeah. with the effects is i think mediated by sort of the psychology of it and it's important you know with a with a sample that has pinene and mercine it might smell like garlic it, those top terpenes you know, pinene smelling more like kind of woody and pine-like and we're seeing being a little uh, floral and sour. Like there, there is, it might not smell like that just because those are the top terpenes because terpenes are not the only aroma compounds that contribute to this, you know, comp there's hundreds of aroma compounds that are contributing to the aroma. So if you go as a consumer to buy a plant that has high pine and mercy, hoping it will be pine-like and woody, and then you get garlic, you're going to be betrayed you're gonna feel uh, you know disappointed and um you because we're not even looking at the sulfur compounds in there that would be causing that skunkiness and uh i just think that when you present it as the top three terpenes the potency it it, it tells sort of a misleading story about what the product is 
um, where you would be better off as a brand to tell what it really is. If it does smell like garlic, say that it smells like garlic. It doesn't matter what the terpenes are. Really, the experience is of garlic. And if you like garlic, buy the strain. Okay, you're me- misleading them. Right. So it's so interesting, too, because you are talking about terpenes effectively. I mean, right. But now you're kind of saying this whole aroma lexicon is deeper than that, than the, the terpenes that we're just talking about. There's so many other factors. You just mentioned sulfite, blah, blah, blah. Well, yeah, <laughs> terpenes are just one class of uh, hundreds of aroma active compounds, aldehydes, ketones, sul- sulfite. Like there's there's hundreds of different aroma compounds that are not terpenes that are very much present in cannabis and very defining too. I mean, recently a paper came out that showed that the thiols were the main sort of contributor to that skunky aroma typically associated with cannabis. And uh, that's not ever reported to the consumer. Um, I'm not sure that it needs to be, but to know that it's skunky is that consumer does want to know that. Yeah, yeah. And and also down the road now, I mean, well, in New York anyway, we're allowed to smoke on the street. Uh, anywhere you can smoke cigarettes, you can smoke in New York. And it's become, you know, very fragrant out there. Um, and that's a big, huge complaint, you know, but in other cities, uh, states, you're not allowed to do that, you know. So, but there, it's going to happen. There, there's going to be an aroma problem that people are going to really complain about. Who, and I just feel like maybe that could be something in the breeders' minds down the road is is controlling all these different things that you're saying to make it more tameable. Tame. And well, look, I guess I don't know. That's just kind of crazy, but I think you've really touched on something though, in that there can be different cannabis products that align themselves with different contexts. And we really, as an industry, are failing to do that right now. So if you you if you know you have a very skunky product, you can market it for those sort of at-home use or somewhere like, you know, you you can you can either play that up, highlight it, or or uh, you know, not highlight it, you can almost obscure it. And yeah. at the same time, if you have something that smells really uh, like strawberry jam or something, you can say like, this is an excellent strain to smoke socially because it's oh. widely acceptable. It's it's something that won't turn people, like, it's not divisive, like skunkies can be divisive, right? Some people like it, but some people really don't like it. So so if you know what you have, you say, okay, this strain, my strain is unique because it doesn't have any of those styles and that skunkiness. And then Use that in your branding. Yeah. Say this is a benefit of our product that differentiates is that this is a great social smoke. And and so again, it, by knowing what you have, you can there's so many ways to do that. I mean, even with texture, let's say, say that okay, these buds are very sticky, perfect for hand grinding to pack into a bowl, not so much to put into your grinder, it's gonna clog it up. It, you know, again, knowing that you're knowing what you have, a very sticky product then you can highlight how it can be used by the consumer for the best experience. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of a lot to it. Um, I'm not sure if I understand this question. Um, can you elaborate on the findings from your study about in the citrus uh, tropical floral type odors, you say yield uh, higher liking scores from your studies? And um, whereas certain biological packaging and agricultural odors may penalize that. And then how do you, what do you mean by that? So in the study, we, we do say that 
essentially these certain types of odors are associated with people liking it more and certain types associated uh, uh, odors are associated with people liking it less. I think that it's very important to caution people from saying that, okay, the, the market just wants fruity tropical citrus stuff. That's not necessarily true. It just means that the market had, tends to have a majority of people who lean that direction. Um, what we do basically is we ask you know them to check all the boxes that apply. Um, and we look at the people who did check tropical and compare them against the people who did not. And we say, okay, the people who did check tropical like these samples more in, in, in simple terms. But even if 75% of the market prefers fruity aromas, that's still 25% of the market that, and that's a huge chunk. Yeah. That's huge that you could market a, you know, a non-fruity one too. You just have to, if you know that you're not going to be marketing towards, you know, the, the majority, then you can target the specific minority that's really looking for your product. Um, so I don't want to... I don't want it to be interpreted like, okay, these packaging and these biological type aromas, which tend to be sort of like cardboardy or skunky with biological tends to describe like skunky or um, sort of like sweaty type aromas. And, and those, you know, there is a market for them. It's just a different market than the folks who are looking for something more food-like. Um, and so it, it's more like, a step towards understanding the market as a whole and to start to develop a sense of where the segments are that we could specifically target a product towards um, and how big those segments are. So right now, you know, if I said, if I looked at my study, I, I'd say there's a pretty big market for fruity, but in that sense, you might have a lot more competition. You might have a harder time targeting specific groups, whereas the smaller market that's looking for, for non-fruity ones, you might have an easier time resonating with them, especially if the product you're already growing is is skunky, right? Then you kind of have to, you know, lean into your strengths, right, as right. a brand. And and so uh, this is just, you know, I I always worry that people will look at that and say, oh, I better start growing tropical strains. It's not necessarily the case, right? Um, so does the lexicon also? So that's part of the lexicon is showing where the general where the interest consumer interest is based on your focus groups is that giving well we we try to keep these the two worlds separate so the two worlds being the kind of objective descriptions of the plant and then the consumer's pleasure associated with that so they're they're really two different things right we want yeah. to what we want to do is is describe it as objectively as possible and then let the brands interpret that and use it to target specific consumer liking groups. Now, um, we did ask about liking in these in our study um, because we were wanting to start exploring that, um, but it's not something that should be in this happen simultaneously, right? They should occur kind of separately where you first, you know, know what you have and then give it to consumers and start to measure who it's really resonating with and what strategies you can use to improve that resonance. Um, maybe you get, you know, you figure out first with descriptive that you're, you have this very aptly strain and then you brand it in three different ways and you give that to consumers and you find out what resonates with them. Those are kind of, in my eyes, the steps that you might take the two levels of sensory that first the descriptive work sensory and then the consumer sensory that you might apply to optimize your brand's success. 
uh, let's talk about the opportunities of you know, um, sensory science where brands can use it to create luxury brands. Um, and I mean, you're kind of giving us some good examples of, you know, how to look at it differently than we've all been looking at it. And just, I feel everybody's going down that same road of identifying the terpenes. Um, you're really opening it up to be a, a lot more complex. Um, so uh, can, can you walk us through the steps? Like if you had a new client that is look, looking to look, build a luxury brand, what would you say to them? What would the, How would you start breaking that down for them or get them thinking? Maybe it's kind of what you were really just talking about. Yeah, I think the first step is what about your product is premium? I mean, you can say like we grow it really well or we have all these, you know. Everybody says that. Exactly. So what specifically about your product makes it unique and interesting? Let's just say you're growing something that's, I, I ran into a, a strain recently that was green on the outside. When you opened it up, it was sort of like a pink purple on the inside. I was like, wow, I don't know anything about why. I don't know why that would happen in the grow process, but it was really unique and eye-catching. And, and it doesn't matter if it's like, you know, everyone, some people will say, if you just Google around, like what makes premium quality cannabis yeah. premium? And they'll have a hundred different things. And a lot of them will contradict them. Oh, do you want it to be leafy? You want it to be sticky? You want it to be purple? But none of those are, they're just anecdotal. And uh, the question is, if you have a unique feature, let's just say your flower is very pink on the inside. How do you highlight that and say, here's this really unique, cool flower. Uh, and by doing, by highlighting that, those unique bits, you kind of already are positioning yourself as a luxury product just by differentiating yourself. Um, and you can charge more for those, those features. Um, so you're on your way to a luxury product already. So first step is knowing, you know, most cannabis cultivars that I've encountered have at least one thing about them that is particularly standout, right? They, you know, some of them will be very, very frosty on the outside. They'll be nearly white and it's like, uh, in the branding of that, you really, how do you communicate that? And yeah. why, why do you communicate that? Is, is frostiness, uh, you know, to you, what, what, may, what do you like about the frostiness? And then under, if you understand why you like frostiness, you can eventually build that into a brand to show, you know, help people who also like frostiness find your product. Mm. Um, and it, I think that's, a lot of that is on the brand to take that objective descriptive knowledge and creatively turn it into something that that people really like and I, I think the first the first step is just being honest with yourself a lot of people you know we've done a few aroma profiles for various various things a lot of people will give them the, what we measure as the aroma profile we'll take 30 people we'll do a descriptive panel we'll give we'll give them an aroma and they'll say I don't agree um or I feel like I don't think it smells like this. And uh, that's probably genuine. You know, they genuinely might not agree with that. But, but the reality is, you know, we, if you get 30 people, blind them to, you know, they don't know anything about this. Now they can't even see the product and they're just smelling it under these very highly controlled conditions. You have to take that data and, and interpret it, you know, in, in, kind of take yourself out of that equation and turn it into this is how people are describing it how can I reconcile what I believe it is and that and there is a way to do that almost always 
you might think you know, it leans fruity well. And maybe people said, you know, smells mostly like lemons, limes, oranges. Like there's, there's a group there that is, is agreeing with you, but there's also a group that's saying there's something else here. It's leathery. It's like, and you kind of have to take that and turn it into this, a more uh, holistic idea that, that appeals to everybody. Maybe taking it back and, and describing it in terms of a experience or a context. Like this is, you know, like an old timey bar. Like it's got that, the martini in one hand and, and the smoke in the other or something like, you know, describing it uh, in terms of what they're purchasing, which is an experience, right? Yes. And and that experience is is not one thing to one to, to all people, right? So you you have to leave it leave a little space for the individual. Um, and that's that's sort of mm. a, a difficult thing for a lot of cannabis brands to do. Um, they want it to be objective. They want it to be, this is the aroma of my cannabis and that's mm. in, immovable, right? Well, um, I, but that's, go ahead. Yeah, I, no, I'm thinking as you're describing all this stuff in such detail that I think my answer the answer to this the question of you know how can they use this to create a luxury brand is you are still creating this lexicon and there's going to be so much in-depth in-depth and complex uh information to unpack in the plant that they'll find their answer in there they've got you know that's that's really what it is 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 once you have that built that's where they can go digging and all that kind of stuff. Um, so really that's, so it's going to open up a whole new um, brand category, honestly. And so can uh, sensory science be applied to all consumption methods? Like, would it affect anything? Like as far as vape tinctures, ed edibles, is, is there, or is it just a flower thing? you the lexicon or how, does that transfer? Yeah. Well, uh, at first, I, I think you nailed it with that that summary of my previous point. Yeah. Um, and related to, you know, tinctures and vapes, I think that we do look at um, concentrates, just the general category of concentrates, rosins, resins, and, and we, we have applied our lexicon to those, and it, it appears to work really well. It, you know, a lot of the, it's very similar aromas. There's a couple one, you know, special unique sensory things to consider with concentrates like uh off aromas from the processing steps that could uh, you know be something we measure and um whether those things how they carry over into the actual consumption experience i think is a whole nother bag of worms that mm. we, uh, we would be looking at okay, the consumer now is beyond the point of purchase. So they've already made the decision to try this product. They take it home and they're interacting with it in all these other different ways that we don't always anticipate. You know, there maybe they're squeezing it. Maybe they're using their hands. Maybe it's, uh, you know, maybe they have a fan on and they don't want it to, you know, there's so many contextual ways that consumers use cannabis that it makes it really hard to sort of say, this is, uh, you know, you're using your arm. I think we'll, over time we'll get a feel for, okay, there's, you know, this group of consumers tends to take it home and leave it in a jar. And then when they want to use it, they, they, they grind it in a metal grinder and that's, you know, the kind of process. And, and I think it opens up a great opportunity 
for people to target those sort of habitual processes that people use at home. And, and even with flour, you can smoke it or you can vape it, right? So maybe some flour is more suitable for vaporizing. Maybe there are some features of flour that, again, if you once you start to measure and you have all this data, yeah. you say, okay, people really like to vape flour that has this moisture level, that's this amount of squishy that that can be packed into their to their machine that works in the right in these ways, and um, they still have to grind it, so it needs to be grindable. And so identifying, you know, okay, these are the things we believe are perfect for a person who vapes, and then saying our brand is flour for vaping. And then you know targeting that that use type, um, and I think with edibles, of course, you know I'm a food scientist at heart, and uh, edibles are great. You know we can apply the traditional food science techniques to measure all all sorts of things about edibles. Um, I mean we do this with gummies all the time with our clients who, who oftentimes struggle with quality, you know what quality features to be looking for in gummies and how to avoid off flavors, how to you know. It, it, do good quality control, make sure they're not releasing gummies with tags, seams, and, um, it, you know, sensory science, it's exciting to apply to cannabis flour, but we shouldn't forget that it's been used for years to make the best food products. And, and when you're infusing products, there are no exceptions. You need to be using sensory science as a quality control method to know what your targets are, what your variances allowed and, and you know whether your inputs are good. I think a lot of people struggle because the they purchase some distillate or some sort of concentrate to use in an edible, and it might vary from purchase to purchase. Um, and there's not very many specifications for okay, this this one tastes a little different. Like as a producer, that's very frustrating to have an input that's coming in a little different every time. Mm -hmm. um, and to develop specifications. For, okay, this uh, this one has this amount of limited aroma. Again, sensory. You must you must use sensory to develop these specifications. So uh, there's just I think it applies to all facets of from from the beginning of the production of the product to the consumer using it in their home or anywhere that sensory has a role that that is critical to the success of the product. Um, to wrap it up, would either, if you want to just talk about, are there any emerging trends or advancements in sensory science that you think would have an impact on the development of either of any cannabis brand? Honestly, I feel like, you know, again, I feel, I feel like I've answered my question. Uh, it doesn't have to be luxury focus. It's everything that mm -hmm. you're talking about today that presents the opportunity. So I'm just going to, that's where I'll, I'll take that. But yeah, so just in general. Sure. Yeah, I, I think one of the biggest interactions there is the the use of software in in the home. Uh, traditionally, sensory analysis occurs in a highly controlled setting in a lab um, or at some specific location um, where we think the product might be used, and and then there's at home use testing, which is which is more ecologically valid or in other words uh representative of the sort of natural context in which this product would be used and um the part you know one thing we haven't looked at a lot is sort of the actual smoking experience of it there's a lot of ethical and, and uh regulatory barriers to uh you know 
handing out cannabis and, and say, go on the survey at home and use it. Oh. <laughs> there are ways to do right. You know, we, we want to make sure, you know, we're not, uh, you know, promoting any harm. But I think as we get better software that's more accessible for oh. someone to just have on their phone and say, I'm smoking this and this is what I'm smelling and feeling, that that has been hasn't been a big focus in the past you know when I was in school and in the past couple decades and now I see a lot more apps out there that are sensory data collection software essentially that that are that are accessible on a phone and usable by by any person to uh, take a sample home and try it and then record responses in their natural environment I think I think that's particularly important in cannabis where you do have these especially if you're trying to measure just like the subjective effect that's happening. Like, do you feel sleepy? Like we think that this combination is promoting sleepiness for a lot of people, but you know, we, we want to start to collect data on who is it really doing that? And in what context is it failing to do that? And how can we address those problems? Right. You guys um, should, you guys should uh, partner up with one of these um, apps to, add to your uh your lexicon only because you know i know one in particular strain app strain print strain Uh. print is a big one that's out of canada um and i know they're doing a lot of things you should check them out that's just one i know some in the united states but i've I, i know about those guys and um yeah so they're working within each state and it's based on consumers giving their uh, feedback on how they feel on a particular product. So then you're getting the ratio of what, you know, everybody's, u- I mean, everybody's using mostly the same thing, one-to-one, you know, THC, CBD, a little, C- but then there's like you know, 25% of CBG or CBG and, the, you know, all that stuff. So, and and how it feels, and there, there's a big focus on the terpenes, but you could honestly, guys, you could open that up more into the, into their app and kind of work together and really create something. Yeah, absolutely. And we actually are, we developed our own application at Gambium that has our lexicon and we, we want to use that actually to, to start, uh, you know, because uh, there's a risk too, you know, with, with just taking lots of cons- big consumer data about stuff, it, because it's highly uncontrolled, it requires a very careful interpretation process uh so you're not making broad generalizations and and promoting you know misinformation and i think you know sites like uh weekly or uh some of those popular review sites can sometimes you know bias people when you know you you get a strain that's called blueberry magic and um and then you look down and, and everyone says it tastes like blueberry well if they didn't know it's called blueberry magic, they may have thought differently. And so, uh, what I would like to see yeah. is is a little bit more blind. So my vision would be like giving someone a blinded sample, and then they take it home directly from from us, and we kind of control a lot of those variables. We know like they're not getting a weird piece; they're getting like something representative right. of a normal product. And we and then we can you know we know that it hasn't been tampered with, and that they opened it at this time. And we know how long ago it was produced, so we have some some control over the product, not even control, but just knowledge of where it's been, what the product has been through, so that we can, uh, you know, make sure we're not interpreting data that isn't really well controlled in a scientific way. Um, we're just, as a sensor scientist, I'm very sensitive about uh, interpreting interpreting consumer reviews 
um, without taking the proper controls. And, yeah, uh, I, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, that 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 would be a little wild out there because you, you really are creating something very kind of yeah scientific and robust and yeah robust and, uh, yeah, yeah. Are, and the last question is are you the last one are you the only ones doing this do you know of or is has anyone cre started creating this i think it's it's very challenging we're in a, you know a unique position as a, as a testing lab to have access to a lot of flour and um and and we're lucky because we have an awesome leadership team who really supports this mission and we have a really talented team of food scientists who we all work with to to actually develop surveys and uh, administer these you know highly controlled tests and it's a big investment so so i'm not surprised that there are not many other uh research institutions looking at this there are a couple um i know i'm uh, couple universities are starting to get into it but of course they have they run into a lot of barriers that make yeah. it really challenging and um and we we're able to um you know leverage our, our position to to do these studies i think it's our responsibility as as you know yeah. impartial group in the industry to sort of lead this um i think we play a really you know cambium we really take a lot of pride in, in the transparency and the trust we build. Um, and we want to contribute to that. That's why we released this lexicon, you know, for free use. It's it's not, we're not withholding it or asking you to pay for it. It's just this mm -hmm. tool. We want people, we want adoption of it. Yeah, you want it. Yeah, yeah, yeah so. sure. Um, I think this is going to really, um, really uh, take us to another level. So I'm excited. Yeah, I, ho I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. I think Consumers are out. I mean, they're really eager for for this type yeah, of, uh, communication. Yeah, and for the communication and for the the connoisseurs, it's for the connoisseurs. Absolutely. Like, like, like the people in the industry, we're all ahead of of the consumers because we're studying this and we're testing and trying and innovating. But they don't even know what we're half the stuff we're doing. So wait till they find out. You know. It's <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be crazy. And uh, really great to meet you. Yeah, pleasure. Thank you for speaking uh, Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at dopehistory.com.